Well, there's a lot that I could say, but I'd like to ask you to take your Bibles and open with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 for our time in God's Word tonight. 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And as you're opening uh, the Word of God, we'll be reading verses 16, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, through chapter 5, verse 10. And as you're opening your Bibles there, I, I want to ask you when pain and and persecution and discouragement touch your life as believers here in the States, in Bakersfield at GBC, when all of those things and difficulties touch your life, where do you turn for hope? Where do you turn for hope? By now you should be in Second Corinthians chapter 4. And Paul says in verse 16, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison, as we look not at the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Chapter 5, verse 1. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed... We have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given to us, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Verse 6. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we're at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for Your Word that's open before us now. And we pray, O God, that as we look into your word, that you would cause its truth to come before us. I pray that you would help uh, each one of us here as we were reminded even this morning that there is never an occasion where your word is not read and sent forth, that you are not in some way or another accomplishing all your purposes. And Lord, my desire tonight is that you would take some unsaved person tonight and open their eyes to their need of Christ. Lord, my desire is that you will take brothers and sisters who have been beaten down in the circumstances of life and are weary, and that you would strengthen their, their hands and their, the inner man, and that you would give them the resolve to take the next step forward in faith trusting you. Lord, my, my prayer is that you would strengthen your church and bless your church for your glory's sake. In Jesus' name, amen. 
one hour southwest of Rugby, is a town is the town of Bedford, England, where the, the great Puritan preacher John Bunyan wrote his famous book, Pilgrim's Progress. In Pilgrim's Progress, the two traveling companions, you remember them, Christian and Hopeful, veer off course somewhere between Vanity Fair and the Delectable Mountains. And they end up trespassing on the land run by giant despair and his wife, Gloom. After apprehending the trespassers, giant despair throws Christian and Hopeful into the barred dungeon called Doubting Castle. Do you remember this? Some of you shaking your heads, yes. Gloom tells her husband, Giant Despair, to mercilessly beat Christian and Hopeful, which Giant Despair does gladly. The next night, Gloom advises her husband, Giant Despair, to convince him uh, to go to the travelers and to convince them to do away with themselves. To which Giant Despair says, that seems like a good idea. And he agrees. In the morning, Giant Despair goes down to the dungeon and offers Christian and Hopeful three ways to get out of Doubting Castle. Way number one, suicide with a knife. Way number two, suicide with a rope. Way number three, suicide with poison. Giant Despair says to Christian and Hopeful, quote, would it not be smart to take the quick way out of your suffering? For why should you choose to live seeing life holds nothing for you now but extreme bitterness? At this point, I want us to leave Doubting Castle with our friends in a desperate situation. And I want us to now go to a much safer place, place in the UK, the country church. This country church is growing so large. It's as if a biblical revival has broken out, and the relatively unknown pastor and his family, they're they're not slick or famous. They're just watching God do something amazing in their local church. The mother in this pastor's home is faithfully serving the Lord along with her children, and of course their dad, we'll call him Pastor Richard, is faithfully preaching God's word, shepherding his family, and ministering to all the members of the church. Pastor Richard's 17-year-old son, we'll call him Billy, has been faithfully serving the Lord as a spirited and gifted musician in the church. Known only to a small number of people in the church, Billy has been struggling with a number of things in his young life. You know, the usual things that most teenagers struggle with. But in Billy's case, for reasons known only to him and God, Billy began to free fall downward, spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. Gray clouds hovered over the windows of Billy's mind, and it seemed to Billy as if he'd never see the sun again. Acutely aware of Billy's spiritual and mental decline, Billy's family lovingly reached out to him. In love and compassion, they did what any loving family would do. They, they hugged him. They, they kissed him. Uh, they, they, they assured him uh, of their love for him. They assured him that if he trusted God, God would, would soon remove the great clouds. Yet unknown to his loving family, deep inside Billy's heart, 
Billy had been taken prisoner by giant despair. He had been beat up mercilessly, and he had been hopelessly locked up in Doubting Castle. Then, one night, when it seemed to everyone that Billy was battling successfully on the outside through the gray clouds of gloom, Billy's dad, Pastor Richard, stayed up talking to Billy and and was telling Billy how much he loved him. And and Billy and his dad, Pastor Richard, laughed together. They were telling some great stories that night. And as Billy laughed with his dad, Pastor Richard looked up to heaven and said, Oh, Lord, thank you, Lord. I think my son is going to make it. About 2 a.m. or so, Pastor Richard said, Billy, I'm so tired. I I, want to go to bed, but I don't want to leave you, son. If you need me tonight. And Billy said, oh, dad. He said, go to bed. I'm, I'm fine tonight. Get some sleep. And Pastor Richard asked one last time, are you sure? And Billy said, yes, dad, trust me. Pastor Richard said, I, I love you, son. And Billy said, I love you too, dad. And Pastor Richard went to bed. It's still unclear to me, but sometime between 2 a.m., And 5 a.m., after Pastor Richard went to bed, giant despair mercilessly beat Billy again. Giant despair lied to Billy. And despair laid the rope in Billy's hand. In the morning, looking out through the window of Pastor Richard's study, they found young 17-year-old Billy hanging by his neck on the swing set from the rope the giant despair placed in Billy's hand. Nothing they tried could revive him, and Billy was gone. I wish I made up that entire story. I still weep regularly as I continue to pray for this father and his wife and their remaining family? How is it that believers can be so deceived by the evil one in life? Hopelessness and despair are pandemics that freely cross all borders, secretly go undetected, and internally wreak havoc until the sufferer is unable to function or dies. Hopelessness and despair are pandemics of the mind of which no pharmaceutical jab can cure you. I ask you, what happened to Billy? The secular psychiatrists and psychologists and their diagnostic statistic manual, the DSM, call it depression. But the Apostle Paul in our text in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16 calls it losing heart. One of God's stated purposes for giving you and me the Bible is so that believers would not lose heart. Do you understand that? Do you know that? Do you believe that? It's, it's right before us in Romans 15.4. For whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through endurance bearing up underneath and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope. Now, most of you who know the background to 2 Corinthians, our text, and its authorial intent 
will agree that the Apostle Paul should have never have needed to write a defense of his, uh, his apostleship. Is that not right? He should have never had needed write Second, Second Corinthians. But I say thank God he did. Because tonight we're looking at the Apostle Paul as a means of finding hope in God's Word. And I pray hope for you. Some of you are struggling silently perhaps uh, with incredible burdens. And you're wondering how long are you going to be able to bear up? Who could I tell and trust with these kind of burdens? I'm a believer, but I don't know how to handle all of this. My friends, let me invite you to turn to the place, the Word of God, to find your hope and your help in time of need. In our expository flyover, 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, through chapter 5, verse 10, you need, first of all, to know that the Apostle Paul, the man who is addressing us in God's Word tonight in this text, has suffered greatly. So, I don't know about you, but when I'm going through struggles or disappointment in my life, I don't want to go to talk to someone who's never experienced suffering, pain, or heartache. I want to go to someone who's been broken under the sovereignty of God and who has been hung, who's hung on by faith and who has been hung on by God to cling on and keep moving forward like William Carey, the plotter who can just take the next step. I want to be counseled by a person like that who knows something of what I'm going through. And I want you to know that the person who will be instructing us tonight is a man who knows suffering. He's a man who knows what it means to be beaten and discouraged. Just listen. We don't have time to read every text, but I'm going to read one from 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23 through 27. Just listen. You don't need to turn there. You can write it down. 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 27. Paul is giving a defense of his apostleship and he's comparing himself with the super apostles and he says, are they servants of Christ? I'm a better one. I'm talking like a madman, he says, with far greater labors than them, far more imprisonments, with countless beatings. This is no soft man. This is no man who's lived a cush life at this point. And often near death, verse 24, five times I received at the hands of the Jews the 40 lashes less one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I was adrift at sea on frequent journeys. Oh, this part gets me. In dangers from rivers, danger from robbers, dangers from my own people, the Jews, dangers from Gentiles, danger in the city, danger in the wilderness, danger at sea. This one kills me right here. Danger from false brothers in toil and hardship. Through many a sleepless night, in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and exposure. And if you want to read more about the Apostle Paul, you can see how he was beat up in Acts 14 at Iconium, Lystra, and Derbe. You can read 2 Corinthians in your own time, chapter 12, verses 7 uh, 7 and following. Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 14. And at the very end of his life... When you think, oh, well, he certainly got over all those heartaches and hardships. In the last letter he ever writes, 2 Corinthians chapter, uh, in, in, I'm sorry, 2 Timothy, he is writing the last letter he'll ever pen before the Lord takes him. We're told through church history, his head was severed. But in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10 and 11, he, he remembers Lystra and Derby. He remembers Iconium. He remembers, he hasn't forgotten the pain and suffering. It's not that you need to forget the pain and suffering. That's the point. 
It, it, it's, it, it may travel with you. You can't change the past. You can't change the, the fact of suffering. Paul didn't try to change the fact. He just knew how to live through it. Paul's suffering, persecution, and pain were intense and frequent. Yet despite his painful circumstances, listen, Paul displayed an imitable abiding hope. I don't know if I made up a word. He displayed an abiding hope that you can imitate. There it is. That's better. There is an abiding hope, regardless of your circumstances, that's found in the Scriptures that you can fall upon and rest upon and find solace and comfort and assurance and help in. In 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, look back at your text. We see it there in his opening words. So we do not lose heart. He's continuing, obviously, his thought from what preceded. But notice that. Hope is at the heart of Paul's meaning. We do not lose heart. In the Bible, losing heart involves a person's mind. Don't, you have to understand the lows of life. losing heart involves your thinking. Losing heart involves your motivation for living. Losing heart in the Bible uh, uh, involves their conduct and daily activity. Losing heart in the Bible refers to a loss of enthusiasm for life and their constant discouragement. Losing heart uh, describes the endless, powerful, and pessimistic emotions leading to despair. And some of you might say, oh no, I'm in more trouble than I realized tonight. Because that describes me. And if it does, there's no reason for you to leave tonight in despair or having lost heart. You just need to be regrounded in the Word and find help here and walk out buoyed up by the promises of God ready to face just one more five minutes to glorify God and then the next five minutes to glorify God. And I want you to see the abiding hope that filled Paul's life despite his difficult circumstances. I want you to see, listen, how Paul's hope-filled life can be your hope-filled life as a believer. And as we look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 5.10, we're asking the question, what is the secret to Paul's hope-filled life amid his afflictions. And if you were to push me and force me into giving one word, I would say the word perspective. Paul's perspective. Maybe I could say it this way. Paul looked differently at everything in his life than normal people, than most of us here. He, he, He just didn't think like us. He, he didn't look at things the way I normally do. And he, I'm, a, I'm like a lot of you, he, he didn't look at things uh, the way you normally do, perhaps. He looked differently at everything. And what was the result of Paul looking differently at everything? Well, the result was that Paul, Paul his life was filled with hope and courage. He was was not thinking in the traditional way about circumstances, in the normal earthbound way. So I I want you to see, uh, I want you to see uh, these six secrets of living a hope-filled life so that you will not lose heart. I know you're taking 
you're taking notes to not only remember what I say, but to hold it against me when I'm wrong. And uh, (laughs) you ought to evaluate everything carefully and hold on to that which is true, which is exactly how you're taught. Six keys to a hope-filled life. Paul looked differently at everything. If you're going to live a hope-filled life like Paul, then like Paul, Paul looked differently at himself. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16. We do, know, we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away. Our inner self is being renewed day by day. Now, I know that in a church like this, we'll know the scripture and, and sometimes we'll hear it back and forth. But normally, when we're focused on ourselves and we're talking about how are things going, we're normally referring to the outer man. We're normally referring uh, to the struggles we're having. But Paul says that the outer man, though the outer man is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. There's a, there's a balance between Paul's material man, that's his outer self, the physical man, the, the, he's referring here by the outer self, the person uh, who's, who's looking back at him in the, in the mirror, who, who's wearing out. Uh, the, the outer self refers to the person at the gym who shouldn't be trying to lift the kind of weights he did at age 25 now that he's 53. That outer man is perishing. He's, he's wasting away. And, and that expression, wasting away, I think Pastor Steve even mentioned uh, a similar reference this morning. It comes from a word that means to, to cause the destruction of something. In Luke 12 to 33, it refers to the destruction that a moth brings about in your closet where there's no cedar chips and there's no anti-moth balls. Have you ever seen what a moth can do to a nice suit, Pastor? Terrible. It is just the wasting away. It's not like a lion chewing a big, big bite in the side. This is a slow grinding away of our lives until there's nothing left. Now, don't, don't get me wrong. When, when, when Paul is talking about the outer man, though our outer self is wasting away, Paul is not against bodily care. He's not throwing caution to the wind and saying, I don't have to count my carbs. He's not saying that at all. Paul is making a factual statement about the decay of his physical body. And and my question at this point, when we think about Paul's emphasis, is he's aware of what's happening to him physically, but he's really interested about what's happening on the inside of him. It is where his focus is. It's where his attention is. The outside has problems, but he's really focusing on the inside. And I ask the question, why do we put 99% of our energies towards what is passing away and so little energy toward the part that will carry on forever? Why do we go to the gym and get on the treadmill and we spend, and we spend all of this energy in sweat so that we can look good on the next Facebook post? And we sweat and we grind it out and we pull back and we exercise and we... There it is, folks. Getting 10,000 steps. We're so caught up with the outer man who's wasting away. What are we doing for the inner man? Paul says that the inner man is, in his life is being renewed day by day. Outside is discouraging. Inside is full of joy and rejoicing. I am telling you, he does not live like most of us. We live on the outside. 
focused here on the outside what we can see. He is living with reference to the inner man, the immaterial part of man. This is what the evolutionists don't like. This is what science without God likes to say, that you are just molecules in motion. And I like what Steve Lawson says. There are no maverick molecules, man. That's Steve Lawson. Paul's secret is to focus on the inner man. When the, dis- when the distress, when the discouragement, when the heartache, when the loss of, of all these things happen in life, when you get that news from the doctor, you're not to be focusing on the outer man which is wasting away. That ought to be expected. This is part of the fall. This is part of the curse. But what's part of the life of the gospel is that the inner man is being renewed day by day. 2 Corinthians 3.18, from one level of glory to the next level of glory, we are being transformed into the image of Christ through the work of the Spirit. And he says that the inner self is being renewed. In in the scriptures, in Titus 3.5, this renewal is started at salvation by the Holy Spirit. In Ephesians 3.16, this renewal involves the Holy Spirit strengthening with power in the inner man. And in Ephesians 4.23, this renewal is taking place in your mind, as well as other passages of Scripture. And it's taking place, this renewal in our minds is taking place on a daily basis. Titus 3.10, it speaks about this renewal is being progressive and it involves knowledge and not just knowledge in general that you might find on YouTube or the internet. It involves knowledge of who God is and God's word and God's promises for you. You are constantly being bathed in the word of God. I think if it were not for scripture memory, some ministers of the gospel might have gone mad years ago. Romans 12, 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. It it, it is that you sit with the Word of God, which was written by the Spirit of God as He moved men, and that's washing and renewing your mind and your thinking. Notice, secondly, Paul not only looked differently at himself, but in verse 17, Paul looked differently at his afflictions. The word affliction... Here in the the Greek, it's related to the word pressure. Anyone ever have pressure in life? No? How many of you have ever had pressure? Let me see your... I want to see how many are sleeping. Okay, put your hands down. How many of you have never had pressure? I want to see how many are telling the truth. Okay. This word, affliction, is related to oppression, and depending on the context, it could be translated oppression, tribulation, distress... You ever been distressed? You you ever been so weighted down? Paul describes this affliction in three simple positive ways. In verse 17, he says that his afflictions are light. His afflictions are temporary. That means they're not forever. They're light. And their afflictions, I've used this word, effective. They're effective. Where where do I get that from verse 17? For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us. It's working for us. That's that's where we get the word. It's a a working word. It's a a word that's doing labor and and it's accomplishing something. It's this affliction is doing its job. 
James 1 says, count it all joy when you fall into divers temptations or various trials. Why? Because it brings about spiritual maturity and spiritual completeness. God uses trials and difficulties and he's working in the midst of all of it. And I love verse 17. It's really for those of you who, are, who, who, who like to study uh, deeply in a text. I'm not going to expound the whole verse, but as I said, I'm doing an expositional flyover. I want you to dig deeper. Uh, I'm going to leave some meat on the bones, in other words, for you to dig more deeply. But verse 17 is a great text to study uh, in, the, in the Greek New Testament. There's a contrast between light affliction and weighty glory. He's like, I'm not focused on the, the light side of the affliction. My mind is on what's coming later, the weighty glory. It's not the light stuff, it's the heavy stuff. Uh, he says, I'm not, there's a contrast between the momentary affliction and the eternal glory. Uh, this is just temporary. Uh, I'm going to focus on what's going to last. This is going to pass. He, and there is, the, the, there is this magnitude of this contrast is, is used uh, in this. It, it's, it's difficult to express in the English translation. Here in the ESV, it says there's working uh, for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Now, really what this, this expression says in the, in, in the Greek is it uses the same word twice. And it's, it's the word where we get the word hyperbole from. But it's not a false exaggeration to make a point. In this particular context, hyperbole into hyperbole or exceeding quality into exceeding quality. In other words, the translators are trying to figure out how do we we use this superlative? uh, How do we define this superlative so that we can see that we're not uh, we're not thinking about this uh, uh, something small like these afflictions, but we're thinking about something that is bigger than big. In the future, this glory that's coming. Paul's going to say in Romans 8.18, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. This is a recurring theme in Paul's life. Paul looked differently at himself. He looked differently at his afflictions. Thirdly, Paul looked differently at what matters most. He says, we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are what? Eternal. So I just want to ask you a very simple question about this verse here in, in 2 Corinthians 4.18. How do you look at things that are unseen? I don't know about you. That's a question I had as I was studying the text. I, uh, Paul, you're going to make that clear to us? How do you look at the things that are unseen? Uh, you can't use a microscope. They're unseen. You can't use a telescope to look in the distance. They're unseen. Is he talking, is he just talking like philosophical binds and contradictions here? Is he, is he just talking poetically? No, he's not. He's talking spiritually. And by spiritual, I mean real, literal. Not physical, but real and literal. Because there's a spiritual part of who you are 
And it's not imaginary. It's not poetic. Your soul is real. It's just not physical. And Paul is saying that we look at the things that are unseen. And how does he do this? He does this, and we do this, through God's revelation in the Scripture. Unless God revealed it in the Bible, we would have never known about these spiritual realities. We would have never known about these unseen things. Last week, I preached from Luke 8, and I talked to you about why Jesus asks the demoniac of the garrisons, what is your name? And I told you that Jesus was trying to say to his disciples and to everyone who would read that later, that there is an unseen world happening at the same time that all the physical events are happening. And we need to be aware of the physical world and the spiritual world existing simultaneously and intersecting as they did in Luke chapter 8. While most people, listen, are spending all of their time looking at what is seen, and that's what we do when we're in difficulty and discouragement, isn't it? Oh, this isn't working right. My diabetes isn't working right. I I don't want to tell you about all the health issues I have. Uh, You might pull us off the mission field. We want to die serving Christ. This may be my last sermon, so pastor, if it is, just... Let that Luke 8 sermon go out repeatedly and let this sermon go out repeatedly. It's a great way to go to be with the Lord. But when most people are spending their time looking at what is seen, Paul focuses on what most people are missing, the unseen. In the midst of your discouragement, in the midst of your suffering, in the midst of of people taking advantage of you and sinning against you, it's easy to look on the outside, I'm just as guilty. I'm preaching to myself. But we need to be looking at the things that are unseen. Peter says in 1 Peter uh, 1, verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope. Believer, you've been saved to a living hope. Not to end in despair and self-murder. Through the resurrection, you've been born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Listen, verse 4, to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, and kept in heaven for you. How many of you with your physical eyes have seen that inheritance? Not me. That's an unseen truth. That's a reality. That's not pie in the sky. That's not false teaching. That's a promise of God. You can't see it, but it is already happening. If you're a believer, you have been saved, born again to a living hope, and your inheritance is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. Fire can't burn it up. Thieves can't break in. Moths can't destroy it. It's there. We were talking this morning weren't we, as we're listening, about laying up treasures in heaven where you're, you're going to your reward. In Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, if then you have been raised with Christ, that is, if you have repented of your sins and turned to Jesus Christ and Him alone for your salvation, then keep setting your mind on the things that are above. If you've been raised with Him, seek the things that are above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above and not on the things that are on the earth. I have heard it, I don't know how many times, in, in over two decades of ministry, some 
some well-meaning person saying to me, Oh, well, we all know the person that's so heavenly minded that they're no earthly good. Let me tell you something, brothers and sisters. I never met a man or a woman who was so heavenly minded. He's no earthly good. But I have met thousands who are so earthly minded. They're no heavenly good. And we need to be setting our minds on the things above the problem that brings discouragement and despair is because our minds are not there. They're down here. And Paul looked differently at what mattered most. It was, and what mattered most were the spiritual truths and the promises found in God, God's Word. And fourthly, Paul looked differently at his death in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. We've made the jump now. Here And he says, we know that if this tent that is our ho- earthly home is destroyed. He's speaking about death down to at least through verse 5 and probably yeah, and even, even beyond that when he gets to verse 9 at home or away. But in verses 1 through 10, you won't find the word death. But he's speaking about it. He, 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 what he does do is he, he, uses, uh, he uses this word destroy. And he uses the metaphor of our earthly home or the tent to speak about death. There is a lie that is believed daily that says, if I don't think or talk about death and eternity, then those things won't come to me. Do you know people like that? Um, People, these are the people who don't want to make sure that their will is in order because if their will gets in order and it's finally updated in the new year, then that might just give God the, you know, the thought to take you on and take you up. So as long as I keep postponing updating the will or writing a will, then, then I'm good. You know, I've got more time to work on that. How foolish. In, in Acts uh, chapter 18, verse 3, it tells us that Paul, like Aquila and Priscilla, they were tent makers. And so when we come to 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we know that if the tent, that is our earthly home, is destroyed, he's speaking occupationally here. He's speaking in a way that they'll understand. He's not just working, making tents. Obviously, tent makers worked with leather and other materials, as, as you can study and have studied it out. But he's using this tent, this word tent, as a metaphor. And in in verse 1, notice Paul's use of this housing metaphor. This tent refers to his earthly home, his earthly body. And he says that when this earthly tent is destroyed, this earthly home is destroyed, this tent that we have, this temporary housing, we have a building from God. A house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. Now don't read John 14 into here. Because if you read John 14, in my Father's house are many dwelling places. In here, you're going to run into problems a few verses from now. <laughs> because when he says, when he, when he says uh, that, he is, uh, uh, that they want to, in verse 2, we're, lo- we're, we're groaning, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. <laughs> now you have a problem because you've just imported the idea in John 14 about heaven and the Father's house and the mansions and all of that. And that's not what he's talking about here. What he's talking about is, is a housing 
You, are, you have a body. You're not just a disembodied spirit. And God has a spiritual body for you. Longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. He's not saying, I want the mansion to crush me. <laughs> I'm longing for that, for that experience. He's, he's saying, you know that perfect body that God's got? That's, that's, that's made without hands, eternal in the heavens. He's, he's talking about his perfected body, his glorified body. And, and Paul looks differently than most people at, at his death. He, he, he makes it clear that he makes it clear that that it's that this tent is going to pass away. And, and we should expect to feel pain as we get older. We should expect to experience heartache and discouragement. And I don't know, I'm 53 now, but it was baldness, uh, bunions, bone aches, back aches. You know, getting old is not for wimps. You know, some of you young people, you know, you don't realize that some of us older people, we sit on the end of our bed just to make sure before we put our feet in our flip-flops in the morning and say, we want to make sure that everything's together before we get up and take our next step. Didn't used to be that way. We just jump out of bed. But this tent, when it, when it, when it is destroyed, when, it, when, it, when, it, when we die, God's got a place for us. He has a, he has a dwelling place for us, not just a, a place in the Father's house, a room, but He has a clothing for us. A, he says, notice in verse 2, about, for in this tent, He's speaking about those of us in our bodies now, like you here, he says, for while we're in this tent, we groan. We groan. This is, a, this is an earthbound reality. It's found in also in verse 4, we groan. And this word groan means to, the, as Bidag explains at the lexicon, to express oneself involuntarily in the face of undesirable circumstances. We groan. How many of us as fathers have had the privilege to to be there as our wives have given birth to our children. And, and in the throes of labor, those hours leading up to the, the joyous delivery of the baby, hearing and seeing your wife, right, men? We've all felt so helpless at moments like this. Oh. 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 Oh, and it passes. You ladies know, and that's what he says here, not just of women, but of men, all of us in this tent. We, we groan in this tent. It, it, in verse 4, it, it, it connects with groaning, this word burdened, and the word burdened means to be pressed down as if a weight, there's this <clears throat> suffering, pressure and again oh it's so painful someone like an elephant sitting on my chest the present tense of this groaning indicates a continuous regular happening in this life you thought that life would get easier when you got saved well you'd be wrong life doesn't get easier your problems don't diminish but the promise is, is you don't have to go through any one of your problems without Christ. 
without God being with you. And another promise in Romans chapter 8, that God causes all things, even that difficult thing that you don't see how, God causes all things to work together for good. He didn't say that everything is good, but he said he's causing it to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. Those are promises to believers, not unbelievers. If you've never repented of your sins, you don't know Christ. That's not a promise for you. Your pain is on you and there's no promise that God is working something good out of it. But for every one of us who know and love the Lord Jesus Christ, he is working something better for us and more glorious for himself in everything he allows to touch our lives. The groaning here in this context is not grumbling. In Romans 8.23, the whole creation groans in pain and travail together until now, waiting to witness the redemption of our bodies Groaning, yes. Grumbling, no. Losing heart, believer, no. MacArthur said about verse 3, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked is what Paul said. And and what does he mean by that in verse 3? He talks about putting on that heavenly dwelling, putting on that, that glorified body. MacArthur says the Greeks taught that matter is evil and spirit is good. So the ultimate goal of the Greek was to be freed from their physical body, to be disembodied spirits. MacArthur goes on to say, Paul was not looking for release from his physical body, but the perfections of his resurrection body. I love, I love verse 4 where he says we're burdened down. Again, there's that word to be pressed down with weight so that we're burdened to be further clothed. And then he uses this expression that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. To swallow up is a word that means to cause the end of something. The the end of death, the living death, the end of that suffering And to enjoy a life everlasting. So when you get down to verse 5, and I'm just, you can see how I'm just skipping across the, the, the peaks of the verses here. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God. He knows about your coming death. He he knows what he has in, in mind for you when you die. He's got a, a, a he's got a body, a glorified body that he's going to give you. In a day to come, he has a body suited for you when you die, if you die before the rapture. And and this is how Paul knows. This is why Paul is filled with hope amid affliction. Because God has prepared us for this very thing. Where does he go for his information? Where does he go for his hope? He goes to God's word. He reads about God's promises. Romans chapter 5, verses 3 to 5. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, Paul says. Knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character. And character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame. Because God, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Paul looked differently at his death than others looked at their, at their own death. Paul's 
optimistic view of his death. Listen, Paul's optimistic view of his coming death does not drive him to suicide. But his optimistic view of his coming death leads him to perseverance, leads him to a God-blessed life and living for the glory of God. I know that when you are weeping, when you are hurting, old Vance Havner used to say, it's hard to be optimistic with a misty optic. When, when you're shedding tears, it's hard to remember that this is just temporary. Paul's optimistic view of his death as a Christian is noticeable. He's not morbid when speaking about death. He's filled with hope. And why is Paul filled with hope even when he's thinking about his own death? Found in chapter 5, verse 1 in the little prepositional phrase, for we know. Paul knows something. Paul knows something and Paul's knowledge, it is, it is this knowledge, it's what Paul knows in verse 6 that, ha- that fills him with hope. Paul knows something and knowing is inextricably linked to Paul's unflappable, unconquerable hope. Paul knows what God says happens to a believer after death. And Paul knows God's word. God's word, God's promises undergird Paul's thinking about his death as a believer. If you don't have a copy of the previously unpublished sermons of Jonathan Edwards, volume one by McMullen, edited by him, I I would commend the volume just for one sermon in there. It's worth the price of the entire book. Jonathan Edwards preaches a sermon on Ecclesiastes 7, verse 1, where he, where he takes this text. He's already been ousted by his church, and he's preaching to the Indians, and he says that the day of a godly person's death is better than the day of their birth. And he unpacks that. And he preaches that sermon to the, to the Indians and those who gathered around him to moderate the grief of the bereaved. You see, there were some funerals that had happened, some deaths that the congregation was experiencing. And he says that the day of a godly man's death is better than the day of his birth. And he goes in to talk about how that is true biblically. He's born into a better world when he goes to heaven than he was born into his birth. He goes to better parents when he when he goes to heaven he he he's in a better and he unpacks it marvelously as you would expect Jonathan Edwards to do and when you read that sermon on Ecclesiastes 7:1 oh how you begin to think differently about the death of a godly man and a, or a godly woman and fifthly Paul looked differently at his life. Do you see it in chapter 5 verses 6? He says we're always of good courage verse 8. Yes, we are of good courage. Verse 9, we make it our aim in life to please Him. This is how Paul looked differently at his life. His life wasn't about him. His life was about pleasing Christ. That's not not the bullseye for most people. It's about the next thing rather than pleasing Him. 1 Corinthians 10.31, whether you eat or whether you drink, here's the biggest and most important word in 1 Corinthians 10.31, or whatever you do, that's where the rest of your life takes place. Do all to the glory of God. 
It's in the whatever you do and and whatever Paul did, he made it his aim to please Christ. Sixthly, Paul looked differently at his future in verse 10. Now this verse in verse 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 10, we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. This verse is not teaching a workspace righteousness, but it is a sobering, energizing motivation for faithfulness in light of the coming day of divine accountability. Paul knows that he is going to stand before God and give an account of his life. No longer to stand before God Guilty of his sins, his sins had all been taken away, but he is going to give an account of how he lived his life and how he finished his life. When you think of all the persecutions that Paul went through, don't you see how easy it would have been for him to take some hemlock? Don't you see how easy it would have been for him to run into a Roman sword? He was committed to glorifying God until God took him. What does hope produce? I'm I'm almost done. Wayne Mack helps us. Many of you know Wayne Mack in his book, Counseling, How to Counsel Biblically, answers this question helpfully for us. What does hope produce? Hope produces joy that remains even through the most difficult trials. Hope produces perseverance. It produces confidence. It produces effective ministry. Hope produces greater faith and love. Hope produces consistency. Hope produces increased energy and enthusiasm. Hope produces stability. Hope produces a more intimate relationship with God. And hope produces personal purity. And if we had time, I would mention all the verses that Wayne Mack listed with those. Hope is such a necessary quality to have characterize each and every believer's life. And hopelessness and despair should not be what characterizes our life as believers. Certainly we experience discouragement and, and disappointment like Paul did in 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He knew, he said he almost even despaired of life. But it was a momentary blip on the screen. And then he got his eyes back on the sovereignty of God and God's in control. It's not that we don't experience it momentarily, it's that we don't live in a state of hopelessness and despair because we have a sovereign God who has made promises to us. When we left Christian and hopeful, they were locked up in Doubting Castle, owned by Giant Despair and his wife Gloom. And remember, Giant Despair had gone down to the dungeon and was holding Christian and hopeful there And remember, he offered only three ways out all through suicide. Suicide with a knife, suicide with a rope, and suicide with poison. Would it not be smart to take the quick way out of your suffering? Why should you choose to live seeing life holds nothing for you but now extreme bitterness? The beating Christian and hopeful suffered at the hands of giant despair was relentless. Christian weakened by the abuse, began to wonder if he shouldn't do, just do what giant despair said to him and take his own life. But hopeful, spoke to Christian about God, the Word of God, the things of God, and all that God has brought them through previously on their journey. And hopeful said to Christian, quote, others, I understand, have escaped out of the hands of giant despair. 
Who knows but that God who made the world may cause the giant to die or that at some time or other the giant may forget to lock us in or in a short time he may have another of his fits and lose the use of his limbs. Hopeful goes on to whisper and speak into the ears of Christian and if that should ever happen again I am determined to act the part of a man and do my utmost to break loose of him. I was a coward When I did not do it before. However, my brother, let us be patient and endure hardship as a good soldier of Jesus Christ, at least for a while. The time may come when we will receive a happy release. Anyway, let us not be our own murderers. With those words, hopeful succeeded in stabilizing the mind of his friend. Toward the evening, the giant came down to see if they had submitted to his counsel about suicide, and he found them alive, but only barely. And giant, when Giant Despair left the dungeon again, he spoke with his wife that night, Gloom, and, asked, and Gloom asked Giant Despair if his prisoners had taken his advice, and he said, No, they are sturdy rogues. Can you imagine Bunyan writing that? I love that. Giant despair says they're sturdy rogues. They they choose to bear all hardships rather than doing away with themselves. Giant despair said to his wife that he would not understand uh, that he could not understand how his prisoners remained alive. He had not been able to by blows or threats or counseling to bring them to their end. Then Gloom said, "I'm afraid that they live in hope that someone will come to their rescue, or they may have tools for picking locks." thus hoping to get out. And Giant Despair said, that's true, in the morning I'll, I'll search them. And about midnight, Saturday night, Christian and Hopeful begin to pray and continued until almost break of day. You know the scene, don't you? And then Christian suddenly broke out in amazement. I, only, I always think of John Piper when he does his biography on, on John Bunyan. What a fool! What a fool I am to lie here in this stinking dungeon, says Christian, when I might walk free on the highway to glory. I have a key in my chest pocket called promise, which I am sure will open any door in Doubting Castle. Hopeful said, that's good news, brother. Do take the key out of your chest pocket and try it. Then Christian took the key called promise and pushed it into the lock of the dungeon door and the bolt fell back and the door came open. The door after door in Doubting Castle was open and using the key called promise, Christian and Hopeful escaped with their lives from Doubting Castle. For you, believer, as one man said, there are no hopeless situations. There are only people who have grown hopeless about them. And that shouldn't mark you as a believer. You have God's sufficient and powerful word and his promises. And you are not alone in even the most painful circumstances, even unto death. Death is not the worst thing that can happen to a believer. Dishonoring Christ is. And we don't need to be like those who have been deceived by the devil into committing self-murder. We must be believers who are filled with hope 
Hopelessness was a mark of your life before you came to Christ. And it should not be a mark after you come to Christ. If you're going to be a believer who's filled, whose life is filled like Paul's with this hope, believer, Paul's hope-filled life can be your hope-filled life. But in order for that to happen, you need to follow Paul's biblical example. Like Paul, you need to look different. Paul looked differently at himself. He looked at the immaterial part of who he was and focused there. He looked differently at his afflictions. He looked at what was coming and all these pains are just temporary. They're light compared to what's coming. He looked differently at what mattered most, the unseen things. He looked differently at his death. This is no occasion for morbidity. This is, a, this is a, an occasion to believe and rest in God. He looked differently at his life. My whole life is bound up with aiming to please him. And Paul looked differently at his future. There's a day of divine accountability coming for every unbeliever, but for every believer as well. And it should motivate you and energize you to run the race with patience, looking to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, is set down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who endured such contradiction of sinners against himself, lest ye be weary and faint in your minds. For you have not yet resisted unto blood, striving against sin. You who have begun well in Christ and in the gospel, may God help you finish well going back here to unburden yourself and going to the throne of grace and prayer and casting all your cares upon Him. Paul says, with these words, I'll close in prayer. Romans 15, 13. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing so that by the power of the Holy Spirit you may abound in hope. Our Heavenly Father, we want to thank You for Your Son and our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who caused us to be born again to a living hope. We want to thank you for the promises that we see and read from the beginning of the Bible all the way through to the end of the Bible that are ours in Christ. We want to thank you, Lord, that you have never forsaken us. You've never abandoned us. Though there have been times where we felt alone, it was just our feelings that were trying to deceive us. But the truth is you said you'd never leave us nor forsake us. Lord, would you forgive us for times where we have felt despairing, where we've not casted our cares upon you, where the assaults of the world and and the things being thrown at us, some things medical, occupational, family, any number of things, Lord. Forgive us, Lord, for those times where we've not run to you as we should and took out the key called promise, but we lingered long in Doubting Castle. Oh God, might you strengthen your church and fill them with your hope from the Word of God and strengthen them and protect them and help them to be a mighty source of help to others who are in despair in this hopeless world as they extend the gospel to hopeless people that there's hope in Christ. And we ask all these things for your glory, Lord Jesus. Amen.